Hi, my name is Lynn McTaggart. Welcome to my podcast, Living the New Science. In these podcasts, I'm covering some extraordinary discoveries by frontier scientists and other new thought leaders and why this changes everything we think about how our world works and also how we should live our lives. Today, I'm going to share with you an amazing conversation I had with Marianne Williamson recently. I don't think I really need to introduce her, but if by some chance you haven't heard of her, she is an international, multiple New York Times bestselling author of dozens of books, a much sought after speaker, a spiritual guru and activist, a commentator and a former presidential candidate. And I'm honored to say, she's also my dear friend. During our conversation, we discussed love as a social movement, including spiritual activism and the meaning of social love, the required shift we have to make in ourselves and setting up a new beloved community and much more. Oh, thank you for having me. This is fun. This is a conversation. I'm always interested in talking to you, but I think the things that we would talk about together on a live stream like this might be valuable to others as well. So let's go for it. Let's go for it. So I want to start with your amazing blog you wrote about Martin Luther King. Um, It really almost moved me to tears, Marianne, because you talked about how the dream not only died when the Kennedys got killed and Martin Luther King assassinated, but it died in all of us too. And we were pretty young when all of that was happening. Pretend we were one, but we were pretty young and yet it affected both of us, I'm sure, really deeply. And so I wanted to pick up with what you were talking about with Martin Luther King and about Gandhi and the whole idea of creating a you know, a a community of love, a social movement of love. So I want to just kick around what you mean by spiritual activism. Well, in 1998, I uh, published a book called Healing the Soul of America. And in order to write that book, I took a deeper dive into American history than I ever had before. I mean, I was interested in it. I read books. I went to school. But I felt in order to write a book about it, I, I owed... Um, I owe my reader uh, a deeper dive, obviously. When I did, and I read more about race, I read more about Martin Luther King, I became fascinated by his theories of nonviolence. Then I read more about him. I read that he had gone to India and had studied the principles of nonviolence as articulated by Mahatma Gandhi. Then he brought them over to the United States for application to the struggle for civil rights in the 1960s. So the more I read about Gandhi and King, the more I realized we don't have to invent any new wheels here. It's already been done. Not only have spiritual principles been given a political context and vice versa, but that philosophy and the activism that emerged from that nonviolent, spiritually based philosophy fueled the two largest, most successful political movements in the 20th century, namely the Indian independence movement, which led uh, to Britain leaving, uh, the colonial empire of of Britain leaving uh, India, and also led to the overturning of segregation in the United States. So I grew very excited about that because as 
Martin Luther King said, Gandhi was the first person in human history to take the religious ethic of love and move it beyond mere personal relationship. That's the point. Moving, when you say spiritual activism, it's what happens when we realize that the principles of psychology, spirituality, um, all of the principles of consciousness that prevail within one individual life also prevail within the life of a collective because all that a collective is, is a group of individuals. So if an individual needs to own its mistake, their mistakes in order to move forward and clean it up, so does a country. If an individual has to atone for its mistakes, if an individual has to be more ethical, if an individual has to be more generous, if an individual has to be more compassionate in order for the individual's life to work, so does the nation. So to be active from a place of spirituality in terms of political activism is not a change in perspective. It's just an extension of, of, of that perspective in order that it apply to our collective behavior as well as our individual behavior. In other words, if love matters anywhere, then it matters everywhere. And two lines from Gandhi come to mind. One, when Gandhi was asked, um, you're, you're so spiritual, you're so religious. He was a Hindu, of course. Uh, why would you be involved in politics? And his response was, is not politics a part of Dharma too? And he also said politics should be sacred. He wasn't meaning religious in some dogmatic or doctrinaire sense. He meant in terms of where we sit within ourselves. So then you see when we're having the political conversation, it should be as deep and real and authentic as the conversations that we value today in our personal experiences. So when so many people say, I don't want anything to do with, to with politics because it's toxic, it's toxic because we're not bringing our depth, psychological and emotional and moral uh, perspectives to bear. In that article that you read about Martin Luther King, he said such things as, in order to change the world, we need a qualitative shift in our souls, as well as a um, quantitative shift in our circumstances. And then <clears throat> this one, which to me really sums it up, he said that the desegregation of the American South was the political externalization of the goal of the civil rights movement, but that the ultimate goal was the establishment of the beloved community. And I loved that whole idea, beloved community. And I mean, I my reading of Gandhi also looked at how he viewed religion. And he always talked about, he always talked about every religion being sacred to him. Even <clears throat> though he had his own particular one, he talked about a religion above that, yes. above the individual secular belief. And that really our goal was unity. So I really want to look at unity because this is such an interesting aspect of where we've gone wrong. Because, I mean, of, of course, I look at it from a scientific perspective and look at, you know, the paradigm that's been created for us that really comes an, for to a great degree from science. You know, science since Newton has defined us as separate, well-behaved entities operating according to fixed laws in time and space. And then we throw in Darwin and Darwin defined us as 
competitive entities, that there wasn't enough to go around, so life must proceed through struggle. And that has pretty much been essentially the paradigm. And it's, it's also created the political paradigm, the social paradigm. And so here's Gandhi talking about, no, no, this polarization that we have, these false divisions really need to be superseded by something that really looks at life as unity. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Well, science is now catching up with Gandhi. Um, the Newtonian physics to which you refer is, is becoming increasingly obsolete. Scientists, the furthest uh, frontiers of science are dropping a lot of that paradigm. Uh, the British physicist James Jeans says, said that as it turns out, life is not one big machine, it's one big thought. So uh, you are well aware as we move into the further into the 21st century, the laws, uh, physicists are, are recognizing that the Newtonian idea of separate mechanistic pieces of the universe is actually not a paradigm. That paradigm, which as you said, codifies separateness, turns out not to be true. Also, Gandhi based a lot of his work on the American transcendentalists, on the American Quakers, for instance. Now the Quakers, saw an inner light within every man, woman, and child, and still do, of course. And the idea from a, a spiritual perspective, as well as a scientific perspective now, is that that inner light within all of us does not stop at our bodies, but that there's actually no place where that energy stops and it begins in you so that we are like the waves of an ocean, which appear to be separate perhaps, but there's really no place where one wave stops and another starts, which is also why what you do to someone else, you do to yourself, which is why the golden rule is really all you need to know, because <laughs> do unto others as you would have others do unto you, because actually they will. And even if they don't, someone else will, because there really is no place where they're outside you. And that's what we're starting to grasp. And when we do grasp it, it changes everything, including our view of politics. Absolutely, Marianne. And of course, a lot of my work has been looking at the new science and showing fundamentally, we are all one. All of those religious teachings are, as you say, now being, uh, being demonstrated in science. And not only are we part of a giant quantum energy field, but as you say, it's now being recognized. I think Nature had it in one of their uh, articles. I was astounded to see an article that said everything is mental. You know, for, for Nature, a very traditional scientific magazine to say that, a journal to say that was extraordinary. But also, I mean, I've certainly seen it um, in, I, for people who don't know some of the things I do, I do a thing called the intention experiment where I get loads of people around the world to intend for a particularly, you know, a scientifically um, um, uh, created experiment. And we've done everything from trying to make seeds grow faster and purify water to lowering violence in war-torn areas to even healing people. And we've done about 40 of them. And one of the most extraordinary things is it doesn't matter where the people are and it doesn't matter where the target is. So for instance, one of our experiments was done in Sydney, Australia, and we were sending intention to seeds in Tucson, Arizona, 8,000 miles away, and we had an effect. And so we're seeing more and more, not only in my science, but certainly in, in the big scientific studies done by physicists these days that 
as you say, we're affecting everything at every moment. You know, we're leaky buckets, sending out our thoughts and our intentions all the time. So there is no such thing as separateness. And more importantly, we're affecting people at every moment. And on that level of the quantum field, there is no time or space. So the idea that you were in Australia and you were intending something about Australia, the intention dwells in a realm where space is meaningless as well as time. And the Course in Miracles says, one day you will realize nothing is outside you. The very idea that Australia is over there or Arizona is over there. No, it's all actually in here, which is hard for us to just sort of understand. Also, A Course in Miracles says that every thought, every thought creates form on some level. In fact, the Course in Miracles also says you achieve so little because your thoughts are undisciplined. You know, it was back in the 1970s when I read a book by Jane Roberts, one of the Seth books called The Nature of Personal Reality. Did you ever read that one? I've read some of the Seth stuff, but not necessarily. I mean, that, that, that yeah. is the first book I ever read that opened me to the realization that thought is the level of cause. Everything happening in the world is a reflection of consciousness. I don't think that I would, in fact, I know, I don't know anyone who picks up the Course in Miracles and it's a beginning study for them in metaphysics, consciousness, et cetera. But that was the book that first just blew my mind. It had, I had never realized anything like that before. When you do realize every thought you think creates form on some level, it makes you want to discipline your, your attitudinal muscles, just like you discipline your physical muscles. You train your physical muscles, you train your attitudinal muscles. Oh, so true, Marianne. I mean, one of the things that we do that a lot on the courses that I teach, because, you know, I do a lot of work in intention, and we find that people are such leaky buckets. We can demonstrate effects that people have, even if they're thousands of miles away and they're just joining on a Zoom call or a telephone or whatever, we're affecting everything. We're creating everything at every moment. And as you say, it's so interesting on time and space. I mean, I, I do things, a lot of things out of time too. And I was fascinated to read recently, the brain cannot distinguish between the past and the future. There's no place in the brain that does that. It's just a, it mixes it up. And that, and any decent physicist worth his salt now says, well, there's no such thing as time as we understand it. You know, as you say, it's one big smeared out now, one big smeared out here. So all of this is starting to say, wait a second, we live in a very different world than we've been told. So what does this have to do with how we behave in the world? When we talk about getting back to spiritual activism, so how does, what does this mean? What do we have to do now? Well, first of all, like I said before, understanding these principles is irrespective of whether you're talking about personal behavior or collective behavior. So I think the simplest thing is to begin with just the principle itself and to see how it applies in our personal lives. Then we go, oh, I get it. Then of course it would be the same. As far as time and, uh, time and space are concerned, Einstein said, time and space are illusions of consciousness, albeit persistent ones. So what the Course in Miracles says, for instance, is that God's time, which is the same thing as ultimate reality, intersects linear time at only one point, and that is the presence. That in, in a very real way, the only time that's real is the present moment. 
the past is only in your mind and the future is only in your mind. But karma or the law of cause and effect is such that whatever was set into motion, whatever cause exists, will continue to create effects unless and until it is transformed on the level of cause. You know, this is what the famous line from uh, Faulkner, the past isn't over, in fact, it's not even past. Mm -hmm. So something might've been set in motion hundreds of years ago, but it's still operative in your life until it's interrupted. Now, even on a physical level, the, uh, the word inertia means the tendency of the object to move in whatever direction it's moving in until the introduction of a counterforce. So when you ask, how does this apply to spiritual activism? Let's talk about slavery. Let's talk about racial inequities in the United States. Mm -hmm. Some people would say, it happened hundreds of years ago. Slavery was, um, was abolished in 1865, enough already. And, in, and this is what I'm about to say does not minimize the fact that much has been done. Yes, a civil war was fought. Uh, an amendment was, um, uh, an amendment was uh, created. Uh, the, the Voting Rights Act, although that has been gutted, the Civil Rights Act. I'm not saying that there has been no uh, success and progress in terms of racial justice in the United States, because there has been. On the other hand, we've also been moving backwards in certain ways, our criminal justice system, private prisons, uh, police actions that we are more and more aware of, et cetera. The idea of atonement means you go back and you say, I get it, mm -hmm. I get it. And, and a no, nations atone and Lincoln passed, uh, he, he had a proclamation for a day of fasting and prayer where he said, a nation must confess its sins. Now, you and I would look at a line like confess its sins and translate that differently. It means to acknowledge your character defects. It means to acknowledge a place where you got it wrong because those character defects are operative in your life. So spiritual activism is where you get we as a nation in the United States, there's so much reckoning going on, uh, genocide and cultural annihilation of Native Americans, theft of land, uh, uh, um, transgression and, and um, violation of treaties that were passed with the uh, Native Americans. For instance, the Black Hills of South Dakota, they had been promised back to the Sioux in 1864 or something like that. So when you say what is spiritual activism, it's where you take these spiritual principles. When someone says to you from a spiritual place, you got to clean that up. You got to clean that up. You're not cool in that area. Your behavior is not cool. Your attitudes aren't cool. And you realize this is blocking my life. This is keeping me from being able to move forward. And I need to, to try to align myself with that which is ethical, that which is generous, that which is compassionate, that which takes responsibility for my mistakes, that in those places where I need to try to be better than I was before, clean things up, do things differently. All that spiritual activism is, is, yeah, that applies to our individual lives. And as conscious citizens, we should do what we can so that it applies to public policy as well. You know, it'd be really interesting to look at how we could go about forgiveness trials like they did in South Africa oh, that's, after that's a great idea for you. Yeah. You know, because um, I've seen, I, I wrote about this in my book, The Bond. I was looking at fairness. I was looking at, you know, if we're not, if Darwin wasn't right, 
So what, what are human beings? And I was looking at, you know, how we need to belong, we need to give, but we really need fairness. Fairness seems to be really inherent in the human spirit. We not only uh, need things to be fair, but when things aren't fair, when we start, when we see that things aren't fair in some way, we become unfair too. So they see this in a lot of games, you know, like um, uh, there's a game called the public goods game that economists do. They put people in a tight spot to see how they behave. And they found that with a public goods game, everybody gets $10, let's say, and you can put any amount into a pot. And of course, the secret of the game is the more generous everybody is, the more everybody gets because the pot is then distributed. So initially, most people are generous, but there's a few people who aren't, who just don't put much money in. That pisses off everybody else. So they start putting in less and less in subsequent games till nobody's putting in anything. And so the fairness in all of these studies have demonstrated it's, it's deep and hardwired in us. Well, but what, like um, what, just to finish, what some of these places that have had <laughs> terrible genocide, et cetera, and issues of terrible um, unfairness like South Africa have had truth and reconciliation, essentially trials where both sides get to talk. And what's really important about unfairness is the imbalance. So the, uh, the victim feels like something has been stolen from him and also feels that the perpetrator hasn't acknowledged his sin. And so that's what these are. They're truth-telling sessions where both happens and only then can there be forgiveness. So when you were talking about that, Marian, I was just thinking about some of that and how that might apply to what you're talking, you know, about slavery and reparation, et cetera. Well, the word that is both its application, you say fairness, it's justice. Justice is an issue that's uh, core to both spirituality and to politics. Uh, in the Jewish religion, the main core principle is do mercy, love justice, walk humbly with thy God. Justice is everything, both in terms of fair uh, personal behavior and also fair economic behavior. You know, where is the justice? Where is the fairness in the fact that we have a, a tax system and other aspects of our government in the United States, for instance, which is inherently structured uh, to transfer the vast, vast majority of the wealth into the hands of 1% of people as opposed to 99% of people who have less so that that few can have more. It is unjust. It is unfair. So that, that has been and continues to be um, uh, the core conversation, not only in our personal uh, issues of fairness, but also uh, politically and economically. Now, when you talk about being hardwired, I want to tell you something that happened when my daughter was a little girl that I've never forgotten. Um, she was playing a board game with a little girl who lived next door, and they were maybe four and five, okay? And the little girl she was the sister of the, of the girl named Christina. I can't remember, it wasn't Christina, it was, let's say her name was Christina, it was. And Christina was four and India was five, okay? I think those were the ages. And in the board game, Christina got the little pieces, whatever it was, and so she beat India, my daughter. And when I explained, oh, Christina, you won the game, she went, 
Oh no, oh no, because she saw that Andy would have to lose and she started throwing the back. Here, Emmy, here, Emmy, you can have them. And I saw that the world was teaching her to be excited about winning at my daughter's expense. And she was like not having it. She was like, oh no, I mean, you can have them back. You can have them. She got there before my daughter got there. She didn't want to win at the expense of the other child. She knew she had an inherent knowing, no, that can't be winning. That can't mm -hmm. be winning. And of course, from a spiritual perspective, and this is where it's so important to bring these principles into, um, into politics and economics, if you have a metaphysical perspective, you know that it's not a zero-sum game. Only the material world is a zero-sum game. But that, in fact, the more you give, the more you get. It's like you were talking about the game where the more everybody puts in, the more ultimately there will be for everybody. So our political and economic systems are still stuck in a place where people believe there are only so many pieces of the pie. So I have to get mine. And if it means you have less, okay. That's why we are what we are. And a conscious evolved person knows, I don't want to win at the expense of other people having a chance to be in the game. And if you understand metaphysics, you know, hey, the more we help everybody win, the more everybody's going to win. So Absolutely. the application of these principles is everything in terms of the conditions of the world. Absolutely. And, you know, you talking about your daughter made me think about just the flip side of that when um, and it actually inspired me to to write the bond because I was watching uh, my daughter, my youngest daughter, who was, uh, I guess, about 12. And she was always a, a real sports prodigy. So she was always, you know, when the ball got to her, the game changed. And she was the center of hockey. I think she was the center forward. And when they moved to the big school, suddenly I realized she had been shunted to a more right minor role. And I was really surprised. And I said, what happened? And she said, oh, well, this other girl took over her position, just elbowed her out, told the coach that she had done that in the lower school. And this girl, by the way, was her best friend. So I was so horrified by this, so taken aback. I, I, went to, you know, I sidled over to her mother at one game and said, uh, you know, tried to bring it up. And her mother just looked at me and goes, well, that's life. And I just went, oh my goodness, that's the life we are teaching to our younger generation. I win, you lose, and all's fair in love and war, um, or anything. And so it was really shocking to me and just really brought into relief what, the way we're living, the way we are teaching um, our children and what this paradigm is doing and what it's normalizing to. So let me ask you something. People are going to say, okay, can, what can little I do? So what would you say to them? You know, cause you and I know it's, it's hard to even comprehend where we start with the corruption that's in politics. I certainly look at the corruption in medicine. You know, where do we start? But we have to look on individual and communal levels. So where do we start? Well, I would assume that if not everyone, the majority of people who are watching our live stream are citizens of a democratic society. Not all, but most, if not all. And this idea that I can't do anything 
if you are a citizen in a democratic society, we have to call ourselves and each other on that. Here in the United States, for those of, in your audience who are uh, citizens um, of the United States, we have uh, midterm elections coming up later this year. And there are basically two categories of, uh, of political thought and action in the United States. And one is very unfair. It's the idea that huge corporate conglomerates uh, get to have such undue influence in Congress that it is their profit uh, margin rather than the health and well-being of the people on the planet that gets to dominate public policy. Then there is another category of the people, by the people, for the people. Of the people, by the people, for the people is fairness, is justice, is the idea that God gave unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to all men. So you simply recognize that who you vote for, not only in uh, the election, but also in the primaries leading up to the election, is the way that you put your money where your mouth is, where mm -hmm. you yourself uh, create force, where you yourself take action that leads in a more just or, a or in a less just direction. And people can go to candidatesummit.com, by the way, uh, to look at examples of non-corporate-backed candidates. That's one place. But the most important place, even before that, is in our own lives. And, you know, I love, there was a, back, I think it was in the 70s, the album Songs in the Key of Life that came out from uh, Stevie Wonder. He said, God is the only free psychiatrist known throughout the world to every boy and girl. And I think each and every day we can ask ourselves, how did I do today? Was I fair? Was I just? Was I merciful? Was I forgiving? Uh, we're all given, you know, in The Course in Miracles, it says, that each of us has a highly individualized curriculum. Each and every one of us have relationships, circumstances, things we go through. Did I show up? Did I try to do my best? Did I think of other people or just of myself? Um, I, I know from my own experiences living life, it's a 24 hour job. Uh, you don't have time to monitor other people's behavior when you're really being conscious and vigorous about monitoring your own. Mm -hmm. You start with yourself and then you extend that to all the situations that you can influence, but I think it has to start with ourselves. Absolutely. I think also we can, uh, and, and one of those ways perhaps is also recognizing a very different story. You know, if we're going to move past I win, you lose, we really have to say, actually, we were never born to be that. We were much more, it was much more important to us to belong, for instance. I mean, I've done a lot of looking into belonging, the need to belong. We need to belong to something bigger than ourselves, a community. And it doesn't have to be a big one. It can be a small community, but we need that more than we need food or air. We need to connect. I mean, one of the, the cruelest things you can do is to ostracize somebody. And even suicides, uh, psychologists say that they die from, they use the term excessive individuation because they feel left out. And when you start looking at the science of, of loneliness or isolation, and this is so important in this time of where we've had to be isolated because of COVID, you see that you know, people who are lonely are more likely, three times more likely to get a heart attack, to get stroke, to, you know, even they're more likely to get the common cold. So factor that in 
to this whole idea of I win, you lose. And you realize that the new story we've got to start telling ourselves is about connection and belonging and unity. You know, going back to Gandhi, he talked so much about unity. And yet, you know, we are, we suffer some of the worst polarization, some of the greatest isolation than, you know, really we have in any kind of modern history. So part of what I, I look at too is this idea of learning how to reconnect on some side. You know, we talk about a, a social movement of love that learning some new principles about who you really are, that you were born to belong, you were born to give. Um, I am fascinated by the idea that we were born to be selfish. You know, Richard Dawkins and all the neo-Darwinists say we were born to be selfish. You know, completely not true when you look at the evidence. Um, uh, just briefly, an amazing story of a guy called Samuel Olander. Now, he was a Jewish boy in Poland during the war. And he, his, uh, the Nazis rolled into his town and murdered everybody in the town, everybody but him. He was hiding in the attic. He ran barefoot to the next, managed to escape, ran barefoot to the next town and knocked on the door of someone he vaguely knew who his father had gone to school with named, named Bolwina. She was a Christian with, um, with a family and she hugged him to her and brought him in. And for two years, she hid him. And this was a very dangerous thing to do because if anyone found out about it, she would have been killed. Her whole family would have been killed. So he survived, he grew up, he came to America, became a noted psychologist, and it became his life's work to say, why did she do it? What compels somebody to put everything at risk for a relative stranger? And it sparked a whole study of his about, are we born to give? You know, or who is selfish and who isn't? And he found that except for those who were brought up you know, abused and all of that, that we are born to give, we need to give. And it's inherently in us. And particularly when we move out of our own space, this was so interesting, uh, um, psychologist Robert, I think his name is uh, Caldini, said, when we move out of our space and into a space of oneness. So I'm kind of intrigued by that whole idea too, of how do we do that? How do we move into a space of oneness? What are your thoughts on that, Miriam? Well, if you look at how the body, how the human body performs, every cell is collaborating with every other cell. And that's how they serve the healthy functioning of the organ and the organism of which it is, they are part. When a cell disconnects from its collaborative function, when it stops working with other cells to serve something higher than itself, that's called cancer. That's the malignancy. It goes off to do its own thing. I don't want to serve just to support the healthy functioning of the pancreas or the bladder or the, or the cervix or the, or the um, lungs. I want to go off and do my own thing. That's a malignancy in the body, and it's also a malignancy in consciousness. And that is what has happened to the human race. We have been infected with a malignant consciousness. And that malignant consciousness is the thought, it's all about me. It's all about me. 
that's a malignant thought. And when we come from that place, the ego mind, which is the belief that I am separate, is my self-hatred, my self-sabotage um, masquerading at that moment as self-love and self-care, telling me to win at the expense of other people, only think about myself. When in fact, that is what will in, in time be reflected back to me as my loss rather than my win. And then the immune system is cells that move into repair by reconnecting the cells of the body so that they move back to their collaborative function. And that's what's happening in human civilization today, because we have been infected by so many of the philosophical delusions that you mentioned. Although, you know, and I'm sure you know this, there are many people who would say that some of your comments about Darwin do not reflect where he actually was at the end of his life. He's interesting that way. I think there's been a selective reading of Darwin. But anyway, the point is that as we evolve, we are now living at a time where the collective behavioral patterns of humanity are leading us to species suicide. If we do not evolve beyond, it's about me as opposed to about us. And that is the evolutionary challenge of the 21st century. You know, I had an interesting experience yesterday. I was talking, I was in a meeting about something that has nothing to do with politics, nothing to do with anything like that, it has more to do with our kind of, you know, transformational field and teaching and coaching, et cetera, with Russian speaking people. And the man who was, was leading the call is, uh, was born in the Ukraine and lives in Canada. And the topic came up of what's going on now with Russia and the Ukraine and the United States. And he said, all I know is that the people of Russia love the people of the Ukraine and the people of the Ukraine love the people of Russia. He said, what their leaders are doing is a whole different thing. So what's happening with the Ukraine and Russia, I thought was so interesting. This is not a land, let's say like some of what you see in the Middle East, et cetera, where there's a very old antipathy. This is an antipathy that is artificially created it not only has nothing to do with where these people came from, it has nothing to do with where they are now. That the antipathy, the separation consciousness, the domination consciousness, the competition rather than collaborative consciousness is, is a reflection of old thinking, obsolete thinking, maladaptive thinking that still infuses our main political and economic systems, but which more and more people in the world are recognizing is the way to our self-destruction. It is unsustainable. And that's why, whether through the kind of work you're doing, hopefully what I'm doing, what everybody that's listening to you right now is doing, it really is a revolution. It is a revolution in consciousness to the realization, which by the way, I wanna point out, in The Course in Miracles, it takes the line, there is only one begotten son. Traditional Christianity sees there is only one begotten son. It says, yes, Jesus. In the metaphysical interpretation, such as the Course in Miracles of that line, there's only one begotten son means there's only one of us here. There's only mm -hmm. one of us here. The Course in Miracles says you're like sunbeams thinking you're separate from other sunbeams. You're like waves in the ocean thinking you're separate from other waves. Now, if I think of myself as one wave separate from the rest of the ocean, which is impossible, there's really no place where one wave stops and another starts. But think of the difference psychologically. If I think of myself as a wave separate from the rest of the ocean, 
how can I not live in terror that I will be obliterated by a bigger wave than me at any given moment? Mm. How can I not live in total fear? I'm just a little wave in this huge ocean. However, if there's a shift in my thinking, a conversion of thought to, hey, I'm one with this ocean. I move the littlest bit, the ocean moves. Mm -hmm. Then you feel so powerful because you're part of the power of the ocean. That shift in all the ways that you're talking about um, will make the difference whether or not I think humanity will even survive or at least survive in any way that is a, a planet we would wish to be bequeathing to our grandchildren in a hundred years. Absolutely. And I, you know, and I'm just going to mention too, you're absolutely right about Darwin. Um, he got hijacked. He got hijacked. Exactly, by he the, did. The mm -hmm. people speaking for him by the neo-Darwinists like Richard mm -hmm. Dawkins. As you said, later in his life, he talked about collaboration. He really revised his thinking. Yeah. So his, you know, there were a lot of other PR people uh -huh. talking to him. He didn't uh -huh. even invent the term survival of the fittest. Uh-huh. But uh-huh. What you're talking about, I think this whole idea of acknowledging and actually experiencing oneness. I've been fascinated, as you know, one thing that really interests me is groups and group intention. Call it group prayer. Intention is a nice secular version of that. Um, but I've been fascinated about what happens to people when they come together as a group, particularly when they pray or do intention as a group. So one thing that was really interesting to me was uh, this happened by accident. I, I was really tired of watching those buildings go down on one of the anniversaries of 9-11. You know, every year we see it on TV. So I wanted to do something differently. So we organized an intention experiment with Arabs and Americans for the 10th anniversary of 9-11. And it was just, I, I have... Uh, like the Deepak of the Middle East is someone who invites me over a lot. His name is Dr. Salah Al-Rashid, and he's got a big following. So we brought his following and mine from America, and we did an intention together to wow. lower violence in Afghanistan. And, you know, there were some really compelling results back then. NATO showed a, a drop in violence. Maybe we did it. Maybe we didn't. But what was amazing and untoward was how the Arabs started, who had been on the broadcast, were writing on Facebook and instant messenger to the Americans. And the Americans were writing back, your God is my God. You know, you, you're our brothers from the other side. They were, they were forgiving each other. They were befriending each other. And so I kept looking at this. And in a uh, few years ago, I did one with Arabs and Israelis. We did an intention to lower violence in, in Israel. And again, maybe we did something. It looks like we might have. Maybe we didn't. But what was extraordinary to me was what was happening between the Arabs and the Israelis. They were suddenly sending well, love to each other. Yeah, it's a revolution in consciousness. I mean, each of us is carrying our own little piece of it. It's happening. I remember when the latest incursion occurred, Gaza and, and Israel. And I remember a thing on the, the internet that was going around, which is two nurses, uh, one Arab, one Jew, and they were, you know, doing a lot of this and love. Uh, you see a lot of that. This is happening on the planet now. It is not centered in any one particular 
philosophy or religion or culture or ethnicity. It's coming up from the bottom of things. It's like being downloaded everywhere. Um, and also going back into this power of intention, I think that you'd agree with this, that we need to remind people it doesn't take a majority to flip a system. You yeah. know, the that hundredth monkey, you know, what do you think it's about 11 percent? I mean, the majority didn't wake up one day and say, let's free the slaves. The majority didn't wake up one day and say, let's give women the right to vote. The majority didn't wake up one day and say, let's desegregate the South. But there's that tipping point, right? where enough people grok it, enough people get it. You begin to see it enough places, enough people have books, enough people have it. And you, and you feel this stuff permeating the culture. You know, some people are talking about it in terms of science. Some people are talking about it in terms of politics. Some people are talking about it in terms of personal relationships, but you feel it trying to make its way up. It just feels to me, Lynn, at this point, it's a race for time. Because I agree. it's happening. We're living at two simultaneous realities. One is the fall of Rome. The old world is falling apart. The old world of separation, it cannot sustain itself. It is maladaptive. Then there's this world struggling to be born, which is emerging from people who are embracing this unity, holistic, integrative consciousness. And the way I see it, you know, when you and I do conversations like this, and it's important that we all remember that these kinds of things are happening everywhere. They're happening online. They're happening in person. They're happening in this continent, that continent, sometimes in one person's therapy session, one person talking to a thousand people, whatever it is. I think that it, 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 for me, it's important to remember every day. This is not just about you, Marianne. So don't get into feeling all depressed because other people don't get it. People are doing what we're doing all over the world. It's, a, it, it, it's happening all over the world. And I think that there's a line in The Course in Miracles where it says that an idea grows stronger when it is shared. I feel that the era of data collection is over. I feel like the people listening to us right now, you and I at this point, unlike if we were doing this 10 years ago, yeah. I think it's reasonable to assume very few people listening to us today are actually hearing anything they don't already know. We're now at a phase of amplifying the things we do already know. So that everybody listening and you and I, all of us, even you and me, leave here that much, that much more empowered in the belief that we might have already had before we came in. And you mm -hmm. just feel it. You, you feel this amplification process. You know, it's like the, the sound, the whale can hear it and we can't or whatever. The birds can hear it. And I feel that there is this, um, you know, there's another line in the course is where it says, the teachers of God come from all religions and no religions. They are those who have heard the call and the call is going out in all dimensions of time and space. I, there's a call. We're all being called. Uh, one of the lines in the course is uh, there is an ancient melody you cannot forget no matter how hard you try. I read a book years ago called The Paradise Myth. And it said that all the great religious and spiritual traditions have the archetype of paradise. The idea of something that we have been to and could yet experience again, that someplace where it is possible to live that way. And then one other thing I want to say, and I want to, and then I'll shut up, but I think it's significant. And that's the return of psychedelics. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's very interesting what's going on now. 
I think it's so interesting the way they're being decriminalized all over the place. They're get, being given serious scientific attention because when you were talking earlier, if, if, some, if a child is brought up with a strong experience of community, the chances are much greater of the sense of belonging that will lead to more functional behavior. Now, we don't want to make people feel guilty who did everything they could to treat their children with community and children went elsewhere. But in general, statistically, one of the places where they're finding that the, the use of psychedelics is having a very positive effect is on returning war veterans mm -hmm. who experience such trauma, who experience violence that was so antithetical to community bonding, collaboration, and love, but that the psychedelics are over overwhelming, overriding some of that separatist consciousness. I think that's a fascinating part of what's going on right now, don't you? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, there are so many moves, as you say, there's so many moves. There are, you know, Paul Hawken has a great, you know, some, he, he tracks these kinds of conscious movements and he just talks about the tens and hundreds of thousands of fascinating and brilliant and helpful movements happening on the planet to change what's going on. And, and they all have you know, that core idea of separation to unity. Absolutely. And what we all have to get, I think, is that the breakdowns that we're looking at are a really good thing. You know, I was talking with Lee Carroll a, a few weeks ago, and he was saying he channels Cryon. And he said, Cryon has told him that this is all happening right on schedule. And that feels really right now. It feels like, okay, we needed to get to this brink in order to start bringing through something else. And lots of people are bringing in separate pieces. And as you say, it's becoming more sophisticated and interesting. Now, what I'm really interested in too is something you mentioned in your blog about the community of love, you know, the beloved community. And I, I, of course, see that in small power of eight groups. I see people transforming. And I think that's probably where the revolution needs to start, at least in my own experience. I see small groups create miracles, not just because the group heals them. We have plenty of those stories. We have cancer, you know, stage four cancer reversals. We have, you know, people healing the relationship, the fractured relationship with their mother. We have all kinds of amazing transformational stories. But I think the number one thing that's going on with them, I had a group write me the other day to say they've been meeting for two years. They, they wanted to talk to me about all of the great things that had happened in the group over two years. But what was most amazing was the connection they had for each other. They cried when they thought about how close they are. And I think about, I remember this is a community of people who have met only over Zoom for two years. But I think that's maybe where it's going to start. You know, for me, it may start in small movements where you know, when you say, well, what can a little I do? Well, one of the things that you can connect with that's transforming for you and the rest is a small group. Because I find one of the most interesting things is number one, the group experience is an experience of unity. And, you know, we've measured it with brainwave uh, studies, et cetera. And we, we have seen big changes in the brain that are very analogous to like a Buddhist monk it, during ecstatic prayer. 
But for our purposes, what's also really interesting is people heal and change, not when they're receiving intention, but when they're sending. And I think that experience of altruism, something we often aren't encouraged to do in our daily lives, is possibly one of the most important elements that needs to shift. It's not I win, you lose, it's you win. And I win as a result. Well, you and I personally are part of a group that's been meeting for a couple of years every Sunday. Sometimes any of us might be there or not, uh, but we all know this is a place we can go, we bond, we are with friends. Now, this of course is a serious issue because since people are hardwired, hardwired to want to belong, when you live in a society that does not give enough of that, sometimes people will look for it in dysfunctional ways. There's been a lot of conversation about QAnon. QAnon is a way that a lot of people have found to, oh, I have buddies out there. I can get online and there are people who are, we're doing the same thing. A lot of times when veterans come back, they say that that's what they miss. Uh, is a serious uh, sense of community. That's why an economic system, political system, a social system that does not foster community is one that actually ends up fostering disunity because people, when they can't find the real thing, will look for the, even if it's the ersatz version. As the I Ching says, even, even thieves have alliances. So that's something that really should lead all of us to know how important it is that children are given a sense of community as children, because if we don't give it to them, they'll look for it elsewhere. The other thing I want to say is about something you said before about Chiron, about the channeled being saying we're right on time. On one hand, I agree with that. And, and I think it's important that we recognize and acknowledge people like you and I, and most of the people who are listening right now are among the privileged on the planet who can more easily say that because we are less likely to experience the personal damage that comes from the breakdown. Um, I, I think it's important that we recognize even our, our job, you know, I, I think that we need to be death doulas and birth doulas. We need to be death doulas to that which is dying and birth doulas to that which is struggling to be born. And that means really helping the transition to be very tender. Take something like moving from dirty energy to clean energy. Well, there are hundreds of thousands of people whose jobs depend on dirty energy. You can't just go, oh, well, that just needs to change. We have to really be very tender uh, in our work to direct the shift from disunity to unity because many people, much more than most of us who are talking about it this way, uh, are at the effect of the breakdown in ways that are even tragic in their lives. No, really important point, Marianne. So let's just, let's kind of enumerate. We've got a few minutes before we can take some questions if you still have time. Sure. Um, let's just kind of give people a, a sense of some of the things they can do. Let's give them a, a bit of a program. So, all right. You want to become a spiritual activist. You want a beloved community. What are some ideas that you, you have, Marianne, for what they can do? Well, I think that the state of our being precedes the state of our doing. One of the tenets of spiritual, uh, of nonviolence is that self-purification must precede direct uh, political action. That means who have you not forgiven? 
Where are you yourself less gentle, forgiving, merciful, humble, righteous, ethical, honest, transparent, authentic, and all those things I'm working on than you might be? Like I said before, that takes a lot of time every day. You know, <laughs> monitor yourself. The first thing is monitor yourself because the kind of changes that you and I are talking about must be transmitted. They cannot, you know, this is why Gandhi said we must be the change. You can't, everything we do is ultimately infused with the consciousness with which we do it. This is that place where personal transformation meets global transformation. We are limited in our power to change the world by any unwillingness on our part to seek to change ourselves. So that's where it starts. How are you doing today? You know, the second thing for me, I always say the biggest advice, you know, the best advice I give myself 90% of the time is get over yourself, Marianne. It's not about you. You know, it's this recognizing where are you living in separatist, you know, mentality while well, you're talking about how the world should be, should be more unified. Where are you building walls that keep you from people in your life, people who might love you, et cetera. Um, you and I have had some conversations about that with a relationship in my own life with someone I love when we've talked on Sundays, am I coming to realize Wow. You know, our own blind spots, you know. Um, and then I, I, I have come to believe because the universe is perfect, what you can do is right in front of you. What's happening? Who's calling, who's, who's calling for your attention? What loved one is calling for your attention? What issue in your community is calling for your attention? What is right there in front of you? You know, not only is everything that we need usually right in front of us, but we're not recognizing it or on its way, but we're not patient enough. And also, what is who is crying out for you? Who needs you? What situation in your own community? What's happening on your block? What's happening in your city? Have you been to your city council meeting? Have you looked in your local paper? You know, we heal by noticing. We heal one aha at a time. The more conscious you become, the more blinders just begin to fall away from our eyes. Oh, I could be the person. I remember hearing Greta Thornburg, uh, Thornburg right, say she became an environmental activist when she found herself saying she saw about some environmental horror and she said, somebody ought to do something. And you begin to realize, I think that somebody maybe should be me. I love that. Uh, I know. And that's exactly it. The, uh, the whole idea that we all have to step up to the plate now. Exactly. You know, that is, you know, we, it's not about sitting back. It's not about somebody else doing it. And I want to just tell you about this wonderful little psychological study. It's one of my favorite. Um, and it is a beloved psychological study carried out by a guy called Mustafa Sheriff. He did this in the 1950s. He got hold of a group of 12-year-old boys, put them into two groups, put them into two buses, and sent them to summer camp. And each group was not allowed to meet the others, and they were allowed to have their own names. So one was the Rattlers, one was the Eagles. They lived in separate places. And at the very last minute, they met each other on, you know, on, uh, on, the games pitch. Um, I'm trying to think of what it what it is in America now. I've been living over here in the UK for so long. They they met each other playing games, and the and the uh, counselors engaged them in highly competitive sports. These counselors were actually social psychologists in disguise. Mm -hmm. So Mustafa Sheriff was the father of social psychology. So 
by the time they met each other in the sports field, they were killing each other. They hated each other. They were ripping up each other's um, uh, prize money afterward. They were raiding each other's living quarters. They refused <laughs> to even eat. Wow. So nothing the psychologists could do could get them together until they created a series of crises in the camp. So they put a truck in the ditch and the kids had to work together to get the truck out. They put a uh, impediment in the water supply, kids had to work together to get it out. And at the end of this, the kids started thawing. They started eating together. They started wow. befriending each other. And by the end of the camp, they unanimously voted to ride home on the bus together. Wow, and they even spent all of their prize money buying, you know, treats for the whole group. So this is called a superordinate goal. And it's been used in psychology in lots of ways. And it means a goal that can only be accomplished by the collective efforts of everyone involved. And I've seen it and I've, I've looked at this and I've seen that in so many different areas and arenas, this coming together creates closeness and community that is really important, that plus altruism. As I said, altruism is like a bulletproof vest. You know, doing things for other people, people who do that live longer, healthier, happier lives. So yes, it's good for you, but it's also transformative in terms of your small community. So I really encourage people out there, even if it's a small group, a small neighborhood or whatever, working together is a healer. It's a healer. It's a connector. It's a transformer. We see this in tragedy all the time. You know, you think of 9-11, the people, the first responders, nobody was asking who's a Democrat and who's a Republican. And of course, <laughs> that's one of the reasons why America's in such trouble, because there used to be, there have been times in this country where there was a social consensus, never perfect, never perfected, that we were all here about something bigger than ourselves. And that was the entirety of the country itself, not just with people who agreed with us. And the fact that that fabric has been so rent is why we are in such serious trouble. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is one of the great things about a goal like this, a superordinate mm -hmm. goal, a small community. It's a way to transcend those terrible polarizations. You know, and as I say, I've seen it with, you know, intention experiments bringing, I brought together Republicans and Democrats on uh, one intention experiment last year, uh, right before the inauguration. Mm -hmm. And it was suddenly, it was a love fest, suddenly coming together for something bigger That's really right. creates- Something bigger than you. And the culture trains us to think it's all about you. And it's the big delusion. It's not even a success mentality. It's not what, you know, if, if you think it's all about you, you become the boss that people don't want to work for. You become the team member that nobody wants to play with. Um, it's got a smell of selfishness and conceit. And it's not what people are looking for. People want connection. And people are willing to sacrifice. People are willing to go to great extent to um, help when they feel that they're connected to something bigger and to, like you were saying, a danger. It's so, so interesting because I'm thinking of 9-11. We were, we were united in our grief. We were. We were united in our grief. It was bizarrely uh, a, a step unified. up. I mean, 
You see that uh, there was, I saw a, a, a story about uh, a plane crash outside of Toronto in 2005. And uh, the governor started calling all the families saying there couldn't be any survivors. The plane was burning. And he had to revise that because it was right near a, uh, a highway. And they found so many people pulled off the road oh. to go inside that burning plane to get those people out. And remember, this is after 9-11. So these could be, this could have been a terrorist group that had done this. And yet people ran into that burning building without thinking. That, without is, thinking. that is our need to, we do it automatically. It's inside us. We have that, we have that innate goodness. And it's almost like when we flush out this old story, we can create the new. Because the old story is not in alignment with the truth of who we are. And we have, you know, as you've mentioned here, been taught philosophies and bought into philosophies that actually stand on the notion that people are not inherently good. Mm -hmm. And you and I are talking about the fact that People are, and you know, we both mentioned our children here. Those kinds of philosophies ignore the reality that anybody with small children has seen. It's so obvious in tiny children, they're reaching out, they're sending love to whoever they're looking at. They're beings of love and we teach them, you know, you look at something like the Middle East, these kids are not born to hate each other. And even now, I don't think the majority of them hate each other. I think the majority of them fear each other Mm -hmm. and they fear each other because they are not in enough ways around the world living from a place where unity is our goal. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's there in us and we just have to stoke it. Those flames are still there. They might be embers, but we can stoke it. I mean, sometimes I think that the term self-help movement has to change. It's got to become other help movement. When when people say, um, when people say to me, you know, say about me, she's a self-help author. I think it's not self-help. You're the problem. You're not the answer. (laughs) The idea that it's just about you and yourself, you know, I was, I was, I was going into a place once and I saw this big sign that said, love yourself. And it was these people who purport to be Christian. And I thought, Jesus didn't come to the earth to say, love yourself with all due respect to Louise Hay. Mm -hmm. He came to say, love each other. That's what Buddha said. That's what all the great religious masters, it's love one another. It, it can't be just about you. And that's why, you know, when the former president kept saying America first, that is as toxic a belief politically as it is personally. If we just, the, the planet can't live that way anymore. We just can't live that way anymore. That's not, that's not, I mean, it's one thing for government to have adequate protectionist measures. You know, there, there's a place for that. I mean, I understand that economically. But when you see it as your whole perspective on the world, that your country matters more than others, your country is better than others, that is as sort of putrid thinking when applied to the whole as it is when applied to the individual. Absolutely. And getting back to Gandhi, he hated the idea of one religious being primal over primary over another. That Absolutely. He said, no, there is no 
favorite religion here. There is only religion and above that that's spirituality, right. essentially. That's right. That's a unified right. spirituality that we all have. And that's why, and that's why religious pluralism is so important. The mm -hmm. idea that, you know, and even in the United States, I, the, I love Jefferson's line, um, whether a man believes in 20 gods or no gods, neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. One of the issues of freedom of religion is not only that you be free to practice whatever religion you might want to practice, you are also free to not practice a religion. So it is as important that a that a policeman can't come in and break, you know, can't walk into a church, can't walk into a synagogue, can't walk into a mosque and can't walk into a young atheist meeting and say, break it up. It is as important that people be free not to believe in a religion or, or spirituality as it is that we be free to believe however we want. And that's another thing that is how nature operates. Nature supports diversity, mm. right? Absolutely. And within that diversity is uh, above that is a unity too, is ultimately a connection, is the perfection of e those parts and how, they, and how they mesh. E pluribusunum, out of many one. Absolutely. So it's so, so interesting that so many of these principles that you and I are talking about is really a return to very traditional philosophical notions that form the core of Western liberal thinking. Uh, these are the principles that form the core of physics. They are the principles that form the core of how nature operates, how the body operates. Um, mm -hmm. It's so interesting how in going forward, in order to go forward, we're going in many ways back to things mm -hmm. that we have known but have forgotten. You know, um, that great line, returning home, but knowing it for the first time. E.E. E. Cummings, right? Was it E.E. E. Cummings? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Uh -huh. Absolutely. Let's take a couple of questions, shall we? Okay. okay. I'm going to have to put my glasses on and read. Okay, let's see. Um, let's see, we're getting, I'm going through the Q's and A's. Um, do we ignore, this is from James. Do you, this is good for you, Marianne. Do we ignore current politics and move to a new paradigm of thinking and action individually and in small communities? Or do, do you believe there's a way to raise politicians' consciousness to take a whole system approach to the issues facing all of us? Well, you know, the beauty, I assume this is an American uh, asking that question. There is nothing about what we are saying that is counter to what the founders were saying. There is nothing that we are saying that is counter to what the Constitution says. Because what the founders in the Constitution said is it's yours to do with what you want, but you have to be involved. The problem is not our political system. The problem is that, is that our political system has been corrupted by the undue influence of corporate money. The system itself, the basic structures, constitutional structures are some of the most brilliant in history. So the answer is not to think we have to tear them down. The issue is to realize how they themselves are being undermined. Uh, by the undue influence of money. We have to get money out of politics. One of the things going on here right now is a bipartisan grassroots effort, for instance, um, to outlaw 
individual congresspeople or senators being able to own or trade stocks. This is one of the ways that corporate money is making, you know, serving in Congress a kind of can become a get rich quick scheme. So it's not the system that is the problem. It's the way the system is now so perverted, undermined and sabotaged. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, this outlawing of things, I mean, I'll just second that on on the medical front. You know, we have to outlaw that the Food and Drug Administration is allowed to own patents on vaccines exactly. and other drugs. We have to outlaw that the people in the Centers for Disease Control and the Food and Drug Administration are allowed to be populated by people or who are former members of the drug industry. Exactly, exactly. You know, that exactly. is just, you know, exactly. letting the, That's know. called corruption. The problem is not the political system, it's that the political system is corrupted. And you're exactly right, Lynn. And I think even things like what's happening now with the stocks, I think we're living at a time of political awakening. More people are realizing this. More people are realizing that it is this corporate dominance in just the ways that you said. Our food has so many carcinogens, much more so than in nations like Europe because of big ag and big chemicals. Uh, our environment so degraded because of the power of big oil. Uh, we don't have health care because of the power of big insurance. Our, our medicines are too expensive because of the power of, of, of um, big pharma. We have all kinds of military misadventures thousands and sometimes millions of people dying because of these ridiculous, uh, absurd and tragic mistakes that we make militarily because of the power of the defense industry. People are getting it and people are recognizing that it's our turn now uh, to weigh in because the idea that either the Democrats or the Republicans are going to fix it. Um, the status quo is so uh, held in such a chokehold. It's so held hostage by these corporate powers. It's time for the we, the people to step up now. So when you say things like you were just saying, because of your field, you're seeing how it's working with the CDC, with the um, FDA and everybody. We're all seeing it in different areas where this corporate dominance is corrupting, corrupting things and limiting our lives. Um, if you ask, how do I stand up and seek to change it? We seek to change it in all the ways we've talked about, uh, including um, and I'm not saying that either political party is perfect in, regarding what you just said, but one tends to be much worse. Uh, there's a wonderful book called The Fifth Risk by Michael Lewis, where he talks about that. And um, it's, mm -hmm. this is a year when all of us have to step up. Most of us, from what I can tell, Lynn, most of us, most of the people who would be even listening to something like uh, this program already sort of get it. We're already positioned pretty well, we all just need to step it up and we have to go quickly. Absolutely. We have to, we have to say, this is, this is my situation too. This is, this is my responsibility now. Every single one of us. Now, somebody, well, somebody's asking the name of the book. The book is called The Fifth Risk. Okay. Thank you Michael for Lewis. that. By the way, I'll just answer this quickly before del delving into a science question. How did you two meet? They say, what was your connection? You two are wonderful together here, says somebody. So we met, yeah, we, we met at the Transformational Leadership yeah, Council. Yeah. I remember I, we were in a bar area, restaurant area at a, some hotel lobby. And it was like, oh, we've heard of each other, right? If, weren't we somewhere? We were in Vail, Colorado, so we met there, and then right after that, we both were going to the same meeting that was called by Deepak Chopra, 
So we were suddenly like at these two events, having never met each other before and met after one after another time, had plenty of time to talk to each other. And, and that was our, our first connection. It was, it was really, really mind blowing for me, I must say. Um, but yeah, that was about uh, around 2008. It was a, it was a while back. It was a while back, but wonderful. And we've, we've connected ever since. Um, somebody asked a really good science question and said, um, is it, um, is uh, entanglement uh, the best explanation for oneness that, you know, with quantum physics? So entanglement for anybody who doesn't know this, most people do now, means that think of two subatomic particles like twins, who are separated at birth. And one sits in London and the other one grows up in New York. And they both grow up, they both marry a woman called Jane. They both love the color blue. And then if let's say one breaks their leg when they're skiing in Vail, the other one breaks his leg simultaneously, even though he's just sitting and sipping a cup of coffee in, in London. So that's entanglement. It's effect of one subatomic particle on another, uh, no matter whether it is they are separated, they never meet each other again, and they're even separated by time. So it is one possible explanation for oneness, but there's many others. There is also superposition, the idea that we're subatomic particles aren't a set anything until observed. There's the role of consciousness and how that can, how we are all creators. And it, as my, my latest work looks at, there is our collective efforts when we use intention, when we use consciousness as a group, whether we're small or large, we are creators and we, we change things. We change things and we also experience oneness when we do. That, that issue of separated twins has always been so fascinating to me. I remember reading about it and there would be separated twins. They're both married to a woman named Cheryl. They both live in yellow houses. They both drive blue Chevrolets. I mean, it's extraordinary. <laughs> I know, I know, exactly. Um, so... Let me see. Here's a good one for you, Marianne. Um, I see the healing power of uniting behind a common cause motivated by collective grief and love, says Molly. Any thoughts about that? Well, I think that the collective, yeah. I mean, I think that we are. The, the collective goal is the survival of the human race. We, we can't continue the way we are. I, I don't think we have to artificially create some collective goal. The environmental breakdown is our is collective goal, uh, is, is leading to the collective goal to try to stop the madness. Uh, the the uh, prevalence of um, and proliferation of nuclear bombs is a collective goal to stop the madness. I don't think we need to artificially create anything at this point. I think for anybody who's just looking at the world today, the collective goal is the sustainability and survivability of the human race over the next hundred years. Hmm. 
Now, here's another one I'm going to th throw your way. Do we ignore current politics and move to a new paradigm, new paradigm thinking and action individually and in small communities? Or do you believe there's a way to raise politicians' consciousness to take a whole system approach to the issues facing all of us? This is so important. You can do wonderful things in community and it should never be, none of what this is, what I'm about to say is at the expense of that or to minimize that. But the main darkness is coming from public policy. You can't ignore politics. Politics is where these policies that are so destructive are coming from. The issue is not to raise the consciousness of some of these people. It is to replace these people in office. This is why more people with new paradigm consciousness have to run for office. Okay, Marianne. This is your turn to step up to the plate. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see. I did it once. I knew you did. You did. There's still time. Um, and I'm going to take uh, another tack from that, which is, yes, we do have Thank to you. look so at voting out. We have to vote out. Yes, we have to vote out the people who are responsible for this. In the meantime, too, we can take action individually and in small communities. I've seen this over and over again, that power of that superordinate goal. Um, I saw it in my own community. They were trying to put up a whole bunch of cell phone towers right across from my daughter's bedroom and all down the street. So we got together in what we laughingly called a housewife's brigade. And we started putting up posters showing, you know, what was going to go on. We, we set up mock um, um, uh, uh, towers just to show how big it would be. We got our MP here. I live in the UK. We did all kinds of stuff like That's that. We handed deal. out leaflets and we stopped them. We stopped one of the giants of British industry. And I see that over and over again with just a committed group of small people saying, you know, a small group of people coming together and saying, no, we can do something else. We can do it a different way. And that can work miracles. It that is fantastic. Does. That's really brilliant. It's like Margaret Mead saying, never doubt that a small group of committed citizens can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. That's Absolutely. brilliant. Absolutely. So the story you just told to me is the climax of the whole thing. <laughs> oh, and many other cases of that. But there's another one in the UK where uh, a big conglomerate were going to take over the South Bank and just take all of these buildings and turn them into high rises and big office buildings. And the community said, no, tell you what, if you build those, they have to give back to the community. They have to tie a certain amount of their money. And they built a a children's nursery, they built all kinds of things, a school for the local community and a bunch of other things. So they made them give it back. They got, and it was just a small group of, of community-minded citizens who said, no, we're gonna do something different. That's and it's beautiful. happened over and over again and people get closer in the process. That's what happened to my neighborhood too. So we are coming to the end of what was 90 minutes of a fabulous conversation. And I know I'm getting all kinds of comments how much people have loved it. I wanna tell you about Marianne Williams's Substack. So if you have loved this, you have got to check out what she does because I'm part of it now and I'm getting these amazing blogs like that Martin Luther King one, 
She has things to say every day. She has a, um, a daily meditation. She has podcasts. Am I missing anything out, Marion? Oh, no, you're so kind to mention it. Thank you. And That's where can it. they get hold of it? Thank you, Mary. You just go to marianwilliamson.substack.com. marianwilliamson.substack.com. Fabulous. So you must join this. It's, it is brilliant. This is Lynn McTaggart, helping you to live the new science. Thank you for listening. I look forward to connecting again. Take care now.